theyeshiva.net. Shavuos, in addition to the great holiday, we call it Zman Matan Teresenu, the day that the Torah was given at Sinai to every single Jew of that generation and of future generations till the end of time. And this year we celebrate 3,333 years since Sinai, 3333, because as I said, the events of Sinai happened in 2448, since creation according to Jewish history. So from 2448 to 5781, you have 3,333 years, Mazel Tov, Shavuos is also the yard side of David HaMelech. It says in Yerushalmi, David Meis Batzeris, David HaMelech passed away on Shavuos. Which also means that it's connected both to Moshe Rabbeinu, he didn't pass away on Shavuos, he passed away on the 7th of Adar, but he gave the Torah. Moshe Kibbal Torah Messina, Moshe is the one who gave us the Torah, David HaMelech passed away on Shavuos. Shavuos is also the yard side of one other seminal figure in Jewish history, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov is known as the founder of Hasidus, the founder of the Hasidic movement. He was born in the year 1698. That's in the Jewish calendar that would be, Hey Alafim Tofnun Ches, 5458. They used to call it the year of Nachas, Nachas. On the 18th of Elul, Chai Elul, 1698. Just a few decades after the horrible Chmelinetsky pogroms and massacres that took the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews during the two years, 1648-1649, known as Gzairis Tachvetat. The Baal Shem Tov was born just a few decades after the terrible debacle of the false Mashiach known as Shapsi Tzvi, who ended up converting to Islam in 16, uh, 1676, I believe it was, and brought the hopes of a, a nation, plunged the hopes into the abyss and created a terrible spiritual, moral, emotional crisis for, for the Jewish nation in Europe and wherever they lived. The Baal Shem Tov comes in to a difficult world, 1698. The Baal Shem Tov would live for 60, uh, 62 years, he was born Tafnon Ches, and he passed away Shvuas Tafkov Chaf, 1760, at the age of 62. The Baal Shem Tov, of course, was born Ukraine, or on the border of Poland and Ukraine. He passed away in the city of Mezhebush, which is where he lived after he has become revealed as a great teacher, great scholar, a great master, a great tzaddik. And that's where he passes away, in Mezhebush. Some of us have had the privilege of visiting Mezhebush. That's where he's buried, in the cemetery over there in Mezhebush. As I said, it was on Shvuas, Tovkov, 1760. There is a very insightful comment by Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner Zatzal. Rabbi Yitzchak Kutner was the famous Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivas Rabbeinu Chaim Berlin, the author of Pachad Yitzchak. He was a very colorful and interesting man. He learned in Slabotka, by the altar of Slabotka. He studied in Berlin. He studied in Eretz Yisrael. He studied by Rav Kook. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary mind. In his last years, he lived in Eretz Yisrael. He passed away towards the end of 1980. And he once made a comment, made, made, once made a comment and he said, 
it's interesting to examine two yard sites. The yard site of the Baal Shem Tev and the yard site of the Vilna Gon. The yard site of the Baal Shem Tev is on Shavuos. The yard site of the Vilna Gon is on Sukkot. The Vilna Gon passed away, Chalamayit Sukkot, Tovkov Nun Ches, 1797. A few decades after the Baal Shem Tev. He said, now, history, if somebody would have asked you, asked your hunch, when should, when, to which holiday is the Balshamtiv connected? To which holiday is the Vilnagan connected? One would say, the Vilnagan, father of the Lithuanian, one of the greatest father figures of Lithuanian Jewry, whose entire focus and emphasis was learning and learning and more learning. His yard said should have been on Shavuos, the holiday of Matan The Balshamtiv would seem to be associated with Sukkot, Zman Simchasenu. The time of joy, the time of celebration, the time of dancing, of ecstasy. But the Ritzakundas said, divine providence had it otherwise. The Vilna Gon passed away on Sukkot. The Bosham passed away on Shavuaz, Manmat and Teresim. Interesting comment. So today, I want to learn with you a few pieces of the Bosham teachings. And the truth is, the selection was pretty random. I mean, I was looking over the, some of the books of the Baal Shem Tov that we have. He didn't write any of his teachings. But students wrote very brief and concise ideas that they heard from the Baal Shem Tov. They're compiled in various books. The most famous is known as Keser Shem Tov, Rivash, Baal Shem Tov and other compilations of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov that was taken from the writings of his students who heard it from his mouth, or people who heard it from students who heard it from him. It's not in Balshamtiv's own language. He spoke in Yiddish, and this was adopted by students and disciples. And sometimes words are missing and connections are missing, and sometimes they wrote it very briefly and concisely. So I can say this 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 compilation was not, you know, methodically thought out in order to give an an exhaustive encyclopedic uh, perspective, not at all. But I just chose a few teachings of the Balshamtiv. Inside, we have the text there that I thought would give a powerful perspective and some taste and flavor into the ideas of the Baal the insights of the Baal especially connected to this time of the year and this era in history and the time and, and, and the issues and, and situations that we all face in one way or another, individually and collectively. Okay, so let's begin. Begin right away. Um, open your source sheets. I took the first one, Keser Shem Tev Simen Kuvchav Beis. It's divided in like chapters. This is Keser Shem Tev, which is one of the famous books that compiles many of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev from various works, various Hasidic works that were written by his students. So this, Sefer compiles them. So I just, there's hundreds and hundreds of, of, of chapters like this. I just took literally a few, and I'm going to try to go through them. I want to try to go through most of them or all of them, so I'm gonna, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to try to, you know, keep it moving. And if you have a question, by all means, you can put it in either in the chat or uh, on the yeshiva.net in the comments, and I'll, I'll, I'll take questions afterwards. If something is really bothering you or unclear, you can unmute yourself and ask your question live. Is also fine. Mehabal Shem Tevzal. This comes from the Baal Shem Tov. Its source, I'm just going to give the source where the, where the compiler got this from, it's from Toldus Yaakov Yosef. Toldus Yaakov Yosef was written by Rabbi Yaakov Yosef HaKoyen of 
Pulno. He was the rabbi of the famous city of Pulno in Ukraine. He was a great sage of his day. He has a sefer called Toldus Yaakov Yosef. And he writes many teachings that he heard directly from his teacher, the Baal Tov, so it's very reliable. So the compiler wrote Meha Baal Tov Zal. You see here in brackets, it says Shamati Mimori, because this particular edition of Keser Shem Tov that was edited by Rabbi Dr. Professor Emmanuel Shochat, Oliver Shalom from Toronto, a number of years ago, he was very meticulous, so he gave out an edition of the Keser Shemtiv, where in brackets he put in the original language from where the source was taken from. So in the original, in the original book, it says Shamati Memori, I heard from my teacher. Intimate expression, I heard this from my teacher. Piru Shapasak, the explanation of the Pasak, Noise Avoin Vaivir Al Pesha. This is a very famous verse from Micah. Micha, the prophet Micha, chapter 7. Micha, Perik, Zion, Pasuk, We say it in the Tashlech, on Rosh Hashanah. We're now actually learning about this Pasuk in the book by Reb Moshe Kordavero, Toymadvari, the Palm of Dari, because he goes through this whole Pasuk and explains how it represents the 13 divine attributes of compassion and how we, we can emulate it and embody it in our own life. So the expression is, Noisei Avain Va'evid Al-Pesha. What do these words mean? Noisei Avain Va'evid Al-Pesha. What's bothering the Baal Shem Tov is that apparently these two expressions are in conflict with each other. Noisei Avain means he carries the sin. He holds on to the sin. He contains the sin. Noisei literally means you hold on, like you're, you're holding on to something. You, you carry, you're carrying it. Like you say, you're carrying something with you. I'm carrying something in my heart. I'm carrying something in my brains, you know. <laughs> Are you carrying anything in your heart? So God is holding on to the sin. Va'ayver al-Pesha means he foregoes the sin. He passes over the sin. He ignores it. Like he dismisses it. Va'ayver. You go right over it. Like ma'ver al-Midoysev. Somebody who forgoes their honor or forgoes, you know, a hurt or resentment. Aren't it too paradoxical? God is noisayavin. Does he hold on to the sin? Or ayver al-Pesha. Does he forego the transgression? So the Balsham Gives her such a, such a simple and beautiful interpretation. <laughs> and when I saw it, I love it because I think it's so important for relationships. Okay. He says, Reutzeloima. Moshe says, let me explain to you what this means. Let's give a metaphor. There was a fight. There was a dispute between two people. And when they want to make up with each other, then they get into a conversation to understand who did what, what was their perspective, what were they thinking, what was their motivation, how it was perceived by the other. This is what they discuss. When they don't want to make amends, when they don't want the fight to end, you know what happens? They don't hold on to the sin. To actually share with the person and share with them how hurt I am by what you said or did to me. God is called He holds on to the sin. He wants to communicate to the person about the hurt that he or she caused. When he wants to forgo the sin, because he wants to forgo it. He wants to make an end to it. He wants that the love should come back, and therefore you have to be able to confront 
and look at what happened. And the best application for this, and this is actually his metaphor, is in any relationship, as the Baal Shem Tov says. And maybe the most practical and day-to-day, on a day-to-day basis, is marriage. You know, there's two ways. Couples argue. Husbands and wives argue. You guys look surprised. They argue. But this that's not the issue. People argue. Two people who are different, opposite genders, different personalities, different dispositions, get into disagreements if they're normal people, right? At least it's very normal, it's very common. The question is, how do the arguments end? The Balshemtiv is saying, there's two ways how the arguments end. Now look at this, because this is so insightful. One argument ends by never talking about it again. Oh, it seems like they're over it so fast. They don't address it. It's gone. The other argument ends by them talking about it and almost continuing it. Which one is in a better state? It seems like the former one. Oh, they just never talk about it. The Muslim says it's exactly the opposite. In the former, they don't talk about it because they don't resolve it. You know, they get into this argument and the woman goes like, and that's it. Stonewalling each other. Or he does it to her, she does it to him, and they both do it to each other. And they don't argue. They just drift apart. And the next argument, they drift apart more. And then 10 or 20 years down the line, they're not connected anymore. They don't argue. It seems like it's amazing. It was not dealt with. No, you say, Ava, and you know when God holds on to the sin, because he wants to forego it. Another couple, they can revisit it. And the wife can tell the husband, you know what you said yesterday, what you did yesterday. It really hurt me. Why? Why did you say it? Why did you do it? He may apologize. He may explain his perspective. The husband can tell the wife, you know, what happened a few moments ago was difficult for me. It was painful for me. What were you thinking? What was your perspective? I think you didn't realize something about me. I didn't realize something about you. They can have a conversation and hold on to the sin. Yes, look at it. Discuss it. Look at it from my perspective. Look at it from your perspective. Let me share what I'm feeling. Let me share my pain about it, my emotions. You know why? Because we actually want to get rid of it. Because we don't want it should remain a point of contention that creates a gulf, a separation between us. Noise avoin because over al pesha. Next piece. Kof ayin aleph. 171. It says in Prikayavas, we all know this, Prikayavas chapter 4, who is a strong person? Somebody who conquers his Yetzirah, his negative inclination. The language seems strange. It should have said, who is a giber? Who is strong? When it says, Ezehu giber, it sounds like you're talking about two people and you want to know who's more powerful. It's like two people wrestling. <laughs> they're going to have an arm wrestle or they're going to wrestle or box. And you want to know, Ezehu giber. Eze, which one is stronger? But that's not the question. We're not here in a competition between two people. It's mihu gibber. We want to know what is a gibber. What is a powerful person? 
Who is a warrior? Who is a truly strong person? And the answer is somebody who knows how to conquer his own yetzer, his own addictions, his own inclinations, his own insecurities, his own his own toxicity. So the, the language should have been mihu giber, not ezo giber. Answers the Balshamtiv Yeshloimar. You could say the answer is Kemoi Beiske Ha'ilam. I'll give a metaphor from something that involves our world. He says you have somebody who was chosen to be Hashoimer Becheder Lishmer Schoira Veshemei Aganov Chaiter. Somebody was hired to be a security guard, say in a room to watch very expensive material or merchandise. And suddenly he hears a thug, a thief, who's who's digging a furrow under the ground, digging a hole to get in to steal. So what does he do? Yesh tzayik. So he begins hollering and screaming. He sounds the alarm. So before there were alarms. But he starts screaming. The thief here doesn't want to get caught. So he runs away. The yesh, but there's another one. There's another security guard. Mechen shal He prepares chains. He prepares a trap. When the thug enters into the room to steal, instead of screaming before he comes in and chasing him away, he actually traps him and he arrests him. He abducts him. So there's two ways. One way the Baal says is, I start hollering and screaming so the Ganav runs away. Doesn't want to get close, he doesn't want to get caught. The other way is, no, no, I get him in. <laughs> I get him in the door, I don't scream. Once he's in the door, I figure out a way that I can trap him so I could catch him and deal with him. What's the point? <laughs> he says, there's two types of good people, two types of tzaddikim. He says tzaddikim, he means all people. <laughs> yes, you have a type of good person. His approach is, maniach. <laughs> He doesn't allow any thought, any sensation, any emotion that's toxic to get close. He starts screaming, get out of my life! The Gemara says in Kiddush and Dav there was a man named Rab Amram the Chassid, Rab Amram the pious one. And he, he had a Yetzirah, and he said when he had Yetzirah, would try to entice him to go do something promiscuous. He would start screaming, Nura Bey Amram, there's a fire in the house of Amram. Everybody would come running to extinguish the fire. The fire was inside. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. It's a whole long story that he had a fire inside. There's a fire in the house of Amram. Where's the fire? He's coming with fire extinguishers. <laughs> Call the firemen. Call the fire. There was a fire inside. But that commotion, that screaming, that attention already, what is he now going to go sin? It didn't work anymore. So it's sometimes an important approach. You push it to have to run away. You push it to have to start screaming. Call somebody, run, go jogging, do 70 push-ups, whatever it is, run into the forest, take a hike, go, go, go jumping, do, do, do 90 jumping jacks, get rid of, scream. But Viesh is another approach. Loikeach achemda. You actually bring in the craving. You have to be careful. You bring in the love. Or that fear which is toxic. And what do you do with it? He says, You don't chase it away. You harness it and you learn from it 
how it can help you serve God. This is the meaning. We are comparing heroes. The Baal Shem Tev said it should have said, He says, no, Ezo Giber. We're comparing two types of people who are both strong. One way of expressing strength is, and sometimes it's critical, run away. <laughs> run away, scream, let him run away. You run away or let him run away. Let it run away. Ezo Giber, but there's somebody who's even stronger. Somebody who manages to spread out the chains, to spread out the net. And bring in the Yetzer. Umidoisa vichemdose lavoides Hashem Yisbarach. He uses his very midois, the very craving to the serving of God. Because what's the difference in the metaphor between the first and the second? In the first one, he's going to come back tomorrow. Come back the next day. He'll always, he's always coming back. In the second model, you trapped him. <laughs> he's not coming back. Because he didn't get to run away. What is this psychologically and spiritually? One way of dealing with the Eight Sahara, which is often very important and it's a very powerful way is just get away. Don't deal with it. Don't look at it. If you have to scream, scream. But get out of there. Another method is Ezehu Gibber does something even stronger. Now you're not, you're not always capable of doing it. That's why you have to be very, very cautious and very careful because the Yitzhahara is so smart. He might tell you, bring me into the house and then you'll conquer me. And once you get him into the house, he doesn't leave. So you have to be very careful when you distinguish between one and two. But what's the ultimate gvura? What's the ultimate strength? Says the Boshemtev. Hakoivish Yitzhahara. What's Hakoivish Yitzhahara? Hakoivish Yitzhahara means I don't just chase away the thug. I mobilize him, I bring him in, I abduct him, I fetch him, and I harness him. I ask myself, what is behind these cravings? What is behind this promiscuity? What is behind these addictions? What is behind this need, this yearning, this longing, this crush that I'm having? There's something I'm searching for. There's some spiritual longing. There's some emotional closeness I need. There's some pain I need to address. And then I utilize this very craving to become a catalyst for serving Hashem. This itself brings me more awareness of who I could become as a per- who I could become as a person, who I could become as a person, as a Jew. And this is a very powerful idea because what it means is that every single thing that's going on in me, I got angry. I can chase away the anger. Get out of here, anger. And control myself and do the right thing. But the thug is going to come back tomorrow. I get jealous. Get out of here, jealousy. And I control it and I override it and I forgo it and I do the right thing. Get out of here, hatred. Get out of here, promiscuity. Get out of here, addiction. You can do it. And you know what? Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes it's too much. It's too overwhelming to be able to deal with it. Just go to another place. Just don't deal with it. That's fine. That's fine. But the Bashan is Aza who Gibber. You want to know ultimately who is the greatest Gibber? Hakovish If you have the serenity to look a little deeper, and you'll see that behind this Yatzer, there's an innocence, there's a child, there's a pain that needs to be addressed. There's something that's actually good, that's finding its expression, its outlet through a destructive urge through a promiscuous urge, through a dysfunctional urge, through a toxic urge. But underlying it is really something very deep, very powerful. And therefore, I'm going to use this very inclination to teach me about who I am 
and to actually now reorient it to be able to assist me in my serving of God, which can actually fill the void and actually help me get rid of the pain. This is a much deeper form of gvura. Hakoivish esitzri, not somebody who expels the Yetzirah, but somebody who conquers, who brings in the Yetzirah, and now you become mine. You become my best friend. My tension, my anxiety, my stress, the realities inside of me that take me away from God become my best friend. They become those very forces that help me in my service. Next piece. Kuf Pei Beis. Kuf Pei Beis is a fascinating teaching of the Baal Shem Tov about davening. It comes from a sefer called Tzofnas Paneach that compiles also the many teach it has within it many teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. Keser Shem Tov Kuf Pei Beis 182. Shamati Mimoiri I have heard from my teacher. This is written by the Toldus Yaakov Yosef of Yaakov Yosef. Pirush. It says in Zoyar. Tzadikim, who daven well, are the emissaries for the queen. They're the shluchim for the shechina, for the divine presence who is called the queen. In other words, they daven as ambassadors, as messengers of the Queen of God. What does this mean? Says the Baal Shem Tov, Al Yidei HaTzar When the person experiences his, his or her own distress, and what's missing, and what's irking me, Yoidea Chesrin HaShchina through me, I know what's missing in the divine presence. Lehispalo, so I can daven sheyemule shama chisar, and that the void in the divine shechina should be filled. And that way, the person creates the oneness between kuchabrichu, between the masculine transcendent dimension of God, and the shechina, which is the feminine divine presence of God. Vizehu maila satfila. And this is the real power of davening. <laughs> this is very heavy. What the Baal Shem Tev is saying is the Zoyar says that the tzaddikim who know, who daven in the, in the ideal sense, they see themselves as emissaries of God. They're not praying for themselves. They're praying for God. What does this mean? Most of prayer, we daven Shemin you're talking about what's missing in me. That's what prayer is. I need, I want, I am asking. The Baal Shem Tev says that's true. But through looking at what I need, I realize what God needs. Because who am I? I'm really a manifestation of God in this world. So if there's something that's irking me, if there's something that I need, the Shekhinah needs it. The divine imminence that dwells inside every creature, including me, needs this. This is a need of God, so this is what I daven for. And that creates the Yichud Kuchabrichu Shchinte. Kuchabrichu represents the infinite, sublime, sublime transcendence of God. The Shechina represents the feminine presence of God that is inside and involved in every single creation in a very intimate way. Generally, masculinity is seen more as transcendent and somewhat detached objective, and femininity is seen as much more involved and engrossed and empathetic and really exp- 
experiencing a relationship in a very profound way, which is why usually, usually, women are very, very sensitive and detect immediately when there's a challenge in a relationship. And have that special ability for kinship and bonding with, with, with children, with, with other people, empathy and so forth, that men often have to learn on the job, hopefully through humility and learning from their spouses. So masculinity and femininity begins with God, Kuchabrichu and Shkinte. Davening is always for the Shekhinah because there's something missing in me, genuine. And it could be something that you think is primitive and stupid. But if it's something that you really need, if it's something that I need, the Shekhinah needs it. So from knowing the void in me, the lack in me, I know what's the lack in God. So they are Shluchim of Hashem. They're davening on behalf of God. Comes the Baal Shem Tev and says, this answers the great question of the great sages of old. Why do we need davening? Hashem knows everything you need. He is aware of what's happening in your kidneys and your heart and your innards. God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. So he knows everything. So why do you have to daven? Why do I have to come to somebody who knows what I need and say, can you please give this to me? If they want to give it to me, they'll give it to me. They know that I need it better than I know. So why are we davening? Why am I saying, Hashem, please, I need this, and I need this, and I want this, I need this, and I want that. You think he doesn't know? Great question. This is a question that's asked by Rabbi Yosef Albo in Sefer Ikrim. It's a question that's asked by the Arizal in Lukut It's a question that's asked by the Maharal. This is the Kadmain that many of the sages of previous generations of Al-Shamdu said asked this question. Umayri bi'er al-pihanal. My teacher says the Toldus Yaakov Yosef, Yerub Yaakov Yosef, he explained it based on the above. Kitfila hutzarech kavaya. You're actually not davening for yourself, you're davening for Hashem. You're davening for Hashem. Sheyeda adam mechesroi noi. Wow. How do you know what God needs? Because you need it. If I have a void, if I have a lack, you know where that void is coming from? From a divine lack, from a divine void. If it's a genuine void in me, it's because there's something missing, so to speak, in the Shekhinah. It's a void in the Shekhinah. Why? Because the Shekhinah is the godly energy that fills and saturates every single created being. The divine essence, the divine presence is really me. I am the Shekhinah. I am a manifestation of the divine presence in this world. That's what a person is. That's the feminine. That's why we're called Hashem's wife. We're called the Shekhinah. Knesset Yisrael, Matronissa. Famous theme in Zayar and Kabbalah and Chsidis and Hashkafa. So the lack in me is essentially a reflection of the lack of the Shekhinah. It's the divine energy that's flowing through me that's missing something. That's what I'm davening for. So I'm praying that this void should be filled in the Shekhinah, the divine presence. As the Zayar says, real people who daven in the most real way see themselves as ambassadors of God, I'm davening for you. The Zohar says, who is a chassid? Somebody who does chassid with his creator. The chassid, the pious Jew, somebody says, I'm davening for you, Hashem. 
And automatically your own void will also be fulfilled. Because if the void is fulfilled in the Shechina, it's filled in the Shechina, then that void will be filled in you as well. But don't get caught up in the selfish aspect of it. Don't detach yourself from the source. See yourself for who you really are as a conduit for the Shechina. You're davening for the Shechina. The words that came from the wise, from the mouth of this sage are graceful. That's often how the students conclude the teaching of the Baal Shem Tev. The words that came from the mouth of this sage are graceful. So the Baal Shem Tev is saying, now we understand why we daven. You say, God knows everything. I'm not davening for me. I know he knows what I need. I'm davening for Hashem. <laughs> it's almost like God wants and needs me to daven for him. To be able to bring out this. So you might say, well, God knows what he needs also, no? He only knows what I need. But obviously what the Baal Shem Tev is saying is that there's a powerful partnership. The Shechina is vulnerable. The Shechina, so to speak, needs me to pray for it. So when I'm davening, when you're davening for yourself, the Baal Shem Tev says, go to a much deeper place. Go to a much deeper space. When you're praying, don't pray for yourself. Pray for your real self. Pray for the Shechina. You say, no, but I need this. If you need it, God needs it. Do you hear what the Bosham is teaching? This is incredible stuff. If you need this, then God needs it. It's not like I'm this selfish, narcissistic, horrible person. You know how we sometimes made to feel? You're davening because you need help in the house. Oh, I'm lazy. My mother and grandmother for like 9,000 years cleaned the house without any help. And me, a spoiled brat in 2021, I need help in the house. No, 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 wrong approach. Of course I should ask myself, what type of help do I need? Be realistic. Don't be a perfectionist. Don't make my life and everybody else's lives miserable. Understand what I really need. But when I really have a need, I really have a need. What is a Jew? A Jew is a chelik elikamimau. Who is a Jew? A Jew is the Shekhinah's manifestation in this world. So I want to say, that I want to ask myself, is this a need of the Shekhinah? Says the Baal Shem Tev, if you have a real need, it's God's need. It's not your need. It's Hashem's need. You're asking for your child, it's Hashem's need. You're asking for your soul, for your mind, for your serenity, for your home, for your situation, for your health. It's God's need. You are the Shekhinah in this world. From your void, you know what the Shechina is missing. Because the Shechina and you are intimately connected, so daven for the Shechina. The Magid once said, it says in Brachas, We daven with Koivad Rosh. Koivad Rosh literally means with a heavy head, which means with subservience. You bend down your head. He says, Koivad Rosh means you have to daven for the heaviness of the head of the Shechina. And then automatically, my void will also be filled through that. Because I am a manifestation of the Shekhinah in the world. Let's do the next one. Reish Zion. You see Reish Zion? The next, the next piece of the Baal Shem Tov. I'm not going to be able to do all of them, but I think I want to do two more pieces. Reish Zion. Says the Baal Shem Tov. Another incredible piece. This comes from 
Magidvar of Lyakov, Lakutim Yakarim, and Lakutim Yakarim. Yirish Hitsainis Habal Adam Gadele Yiris Alakim. Sometimes you get scared. An external fear that comes into your life, you know what it's really there for? It's there to arouse you and help you experience awe of Hashem. Really? What does this mean? I'll give you a metaphor. The king sends an Ishchayel, sends one of his generals or commanders or soldiers to summon a person. Now this messenger comes, happens to be in a very angry space. And he happens to be in a state that inspires fear and reverence and awe. This guy is, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy, you look at him and he's like a scary, scary looking guy. He says, Don't be afraid of what he looks like. Because he's powerless. He's just a messenger who's summoning you to the king. It's not like he has any, anything to do or to say that carries weight. He's just a messenger of the king. Rather focus on who sent him, and that should be your focus. Go to the king and talk to the king, and you guys will make up. You'll have a great relationship. Sometimes you have a love that comes into you. It's an external love. External love means it's a love that's that's stemming from your externalities to other external things. It comes to you. Again, it's just a messenger to help you come to the love of God. Sometimes the king summons you and he's very loving. He's dressed very elegantly and he speaks very, in a very refined tone and he's all smiles and affection. Umishu tipish, if you're foolish, say, oh, you're such a nice guy, let's go out, let's become friends. And you spend your time to hang out and enjoy this guy who's such a nice guy because he's giving you compliments. But somebody who's wiser, why am I playing around, why am I enjoying only my time with him? Let me go to the source. Let me go to the source. Let me go to the one who sent him. Basically, <laughs> he's coming from the king, and the king sends him. And probably the king is in a very gracious mood and full of love to me. So he says, this person is expressing that. So I'm going to get caught up in this. Imagine how powerful it is in the source. Eilech l'shoyrishav. I want to go to the source of the love. So the Baal is telling us that in life, every experience that you have is essentially, it's a messenger of Hashem. Sometimes it's fear, stress, anxiety. Sometimes it's cravings. I'm loving, I'm having a crush, I'm, I'm, I'm gravitating to something, a person or food. It's really a shliach. Don't get caught up in the external facade. Go to the essence. Go to the core. Don't get caught up in the outer fear. Say, I'm frightened. I'm up. This is just God talking to you and inviting you 
into a deeper relationship. Because I cannot hear the language of God directly. So what does he do? He sends a messenger. And the messenger is translate, translates God's message into very concrete categories and ideas. So the fear is from something very physical or very tangible or very relatable. And the love, the affection is to something very tangible, very relatable, but really it's external, meaning it's not what I'm really, really looking for. It's not coming from my inner depth. It's really an external facade, and therefore I'm also gravitating to something that's really external, not to the ultimate core of it. It's my external dimension relating to your external dimension. So it's a message. It's an opportunity to go deeper and ask myself, what is the divine message here? And then I'm going to cultivate an awe and a reverence and a respect for infinity. And I'll cultivate a love and an affection for truth, for real depth. And that's the meaning the Pasuk says in Shaiftim, Tomim Tiye Imashem Literally, it means you should be wholesome with God. The tough is a large tough. In the beginning of Divrei Hayamim Aleph, we have the the tough is a is 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 a large. It's a, it's it's a big tough. The lechayda hatof rechaykem and Aleph, but the tough is very distant from Aleph. Aleph is one, and tough is at the end. So Tuf represents the furthest point from Aleph, which is oneness, which is Hashem Echad, which is Aleph, the one. So why would we make the Tuf big? Tomim tiyim Hashem alakecha. Tomim, the Tuf is distant from God. Says the Baal Shem Tev, that the idea here is, Lirma is lahala, is kol There's an intimation here that you can sublimate even something that's distant. Whether it's a love that seems so distant from God. It's like a crush I'm having maybe on somebody or some addiction or craving I'm having. There's something that's not even good for me or a fear, a stress that I'm having or some joy of connected to a very physical pleasure. El Aleph, even if it's a tough, you can bring it back to the Aleph. Haroim is which represents the leader, the teacher of the world. So Tomim Tiem Hashem The Tov can also become part of Hashem In other words, even that which seems like the furthest, most distant element from a relationship with the divine, if I see it as a messenger, it's really only an alarm clock to help me become aware of what I need in my relationship with Hashem what I'm really looking for. God is reaching out to me either through love or through awe or through pleasure or through joy, but I can't understand the divine message, so it's enclosed in a physical shliach. So therefore I'm feeling love to this food or I'm feeling love to this situation or I'm feeling scared of this situation. Don't get caught up over there. That's not what you're looking for. (laughs) Inside this love and awe, is a whispering voice, is a baskal, a whispering message from Hashem, that what you're really looking for is a relationship with your innermost self and with the truth of everything. So just see this messenger as an invite, as an invitation. He's inviting you to come see the king. That's what you should be doing now. Don't get caught up 
in the external expression go to the depth of it. Shin Pei Vav. It's a story, so we'll end with a story. Pam Haya Shavis Abal Shemtev. It happened once that the Balshemtiv had to be somewhere on Shabbos. He had to rest on Shabbos, obviously. And he ended up in a village and he had his own minion. So he davened over there and he had the meals together with a minion that he brought. Now it could be that in that place there was no minion the Jews there wouldn't get together for the meals or for the davening. Besides one meal, we'll soon see. So maybe that's why the Baal Shem Tov brought a minion. It's not so clear in the story, but the Baal Shem Tov was there with a minion, or maybe he just happened to be there with a minion. And he spent Shabbos in this village. When it came time for the third meal, something interesting happens. The person who was in charge on the village gathered some of the Jewish villagers there and he sat with them and they ate together and they drank together and they sang and they praised God and they engaged in all these types of melodies and Jewish ballads. The Baal Shem Tev of blessed memory saw this. What he saw was that this villager, this man who arranged this Shalashudas was extremely accepted in heaven. There was a special joy that the Rebbein Shlalem that Hashem had from this Jew's Shalashudas. The so after the meal, he calls him over and he says, I want to ask you a question. Why do you spend so much money on the third meal of Shabbos? Obviously, the first meal, they didn't eat together. The second meal, they didn't eat together. It could be even for the davening, they weren't together. Maybe that's why the Baal Shem brought his own minion. It came the third meal, this guy, who was obviously a more simple Jew, spent a lot of money and he had a lot of food and a lot of drinks and he brought everybody together and they had a great party and celebration and zmiris and shiras and what's What happened? Most people, how do they eat shalashudas? Yeah, they go home and they eat. You know, shalashudas is a little meager meal after a big lunch and a big Friday night. You eat them a little, a little meal. People have a little herring, a little egg salad, whatever it is, sponge cake. <laughs> a bisal challah, but it's a small meal. This guy would spend primarily on the third meal, unlike the custom in most Jewish homes and most Jewish communities. Now, it's very obvious that this was a village where they weren't getting together. In other words, these were not Jews who were steeped in learning and scholarship. It was more Jews who were simple, like in the Baal Shem Tov's days, you had so many of these Jews who lived in little villages and they ran motels or they ran little inns or they were farmers. So they didn't have a strong sense of community. So the Baal Shem Tov was wondering what he's thinking. And this person tells the Baal I'm not an educated guy, so to speak. But I've heard people say, I've heard the world say, I've heard people say, ah, I hope that my soul should leave among other Jews. 
this was like a hope, you know. These were difficult years. And a lot of different situations in which people can pass away. So he said, I've heard Jews wish on themselves. Ah, halavai, I should die among Jews. My soul should go out among Eden, as it says in Shulchan Aruch, in Eredeya. Shun Lametes, it's a very special schus. When, when the neshama goes out, there's, there's Jews around. V'hine shamati, I heard, Shabbos, yesh l'kol echad mi Yisrael neshama I heard this villager tells the Balshemtiv that every Shabbos, every Jew has an extra soul. And on Mitzvah Shabbos, the soul leaves. In other words, the departure of Shabbos is a form of death because the extra soul leaves you. So I also said, When my additional Shabbos soul leaves, it should be among Jews. So when it comes to the third meal, which extends all the way till nightfall when Shabbos ends, and the extra neshama is leaving, so it's a form of spiritual diminishment of life. And I heard Jews always say, I wish I'd die around Jews, my soul should go out around Jews. So when my extra soul goes out, I want to be among Jews. When this tragedy strikes me, when Shabbos ends, my soul is leaving, I want to be with people I love. I want to be with Yiddish and Hashemus. I want to be among, among my brothers and my sisters. That's why I bring them together. And the Bashemtiv kveld from this insight, from this simple Jew, why he brought together so many Jews, Shalashudas. So when his extra soul leaves, he should be in the atmosphere and the presence of so much love. And indeed, it's known that the Bashemtiv instituted and this has become the custom in many, many Hasidic communities over the generations that for the third meal, Jews should come together. They shouldn't do the third meal on their own, each person in their own cocoon, but they should come together as a chavura, fabreg together, sing together, and share words of Torah and chizuk and inspiration together until, until, until this very day. There's a Sefer Mishmeris Shalom, and he says that the Baal Shem Tev and his students, and the students of his students were very careful about this, that the third meal should be together with other Yidin, Basifas, Basifas Am. The Zoyar Chai, the commander, says that the Baal Shem Tev's custom was also to extend Shalashudas late into the night, to be together, together with the people. Where did the Baal Shem Tev learn this from? It seems like the Baal Shem Tev learned this from this villager, who told him that day, that Shabbos, that I want to be together with people whom I love. I want to be together with other holy souls when my soul leaves. So that's why he had Shalashudas together. Okay, we'll take a break here, and let's take some questions. Eiza Hugiber, Perhaps the strength of this generation as opposed to the previous one, is not necessarily of our own choosing, but it's been imposed upon us, living in American society. Perhaps this is the crux of our challenge today, but I don't think we are choosing it per se. We have no choice. Understanding this is a good awareness to be proactive of the kaivish es yitzray that we have to grapple with. In other words... Maybe in other times, 
people can actually exercise the first form of strength, dismissing it, running away from it, not dealing with it, which is amazing. But perhaps we live in a time when we, at least many of us, cannot, maybe all of us or most of us, cannot choose the former. We have to exercise the new type of gvura, the new type of strength. The Baal Shem Tov says, to really be able to to discover and work with all of those forces that seem to traumatize us and paralyze us and and delegitimize us and 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 drain us and drain us and and take us away from who we really are and really can be and and harness them and utilize them and grapple with them to be able to become a, a springboard for rejuvenation, for, for renaissance, for awareness. Thank you for sharing that. I don't understand everything you said about prayer. I thought Hashem didn't need anything. <laughs> That's a good question. So, uh, there's two aspects here. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna delve into this at length, but, uh, we have a few classes on this on the yeshiva.net if you put in does God need anything? Does God need me? You'll see. You'll see some classes on this. But I'm going to say very two points. One is the Baal Shem Tov is talking about Shechina. There's Kuchabrichu and Shechinte. You remember? Jews in many communities, before every mitzvah they do, they say for the unity of Kuchabrichu and Shechinte. We say it in the morning, in the beginning of Davening. Kuchabrichu represents HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, which is transcendent and infinite. Shechina, Veshachanti, is the divine presence that dwells in the world and is manifested in the world, and therefore it's part of the flux situations of life. The ebb, the flow, the rhythm of life is Shechina. Shechina is the divine presence that's enclosed and expressed and manifested and vibrates and flows through and in every single creature, in their own unique way, that's why it's individuated. In, in Hasidic terminology, it's called Mamalik Kalam and in of Kalam. So therefore, the Shechina, God says, I'm with you in your distress. When you're in pain, I'm in pain. I'm there. I'm inside your pain. I'm not sitting on an ivory tower and looking at your pain and saying, Oi, I'm so sorry. When you come to the mountain, I'll give you a hug. No. I am with you in every one of your journeys. I'm not only holding your hand and even nurturing you, but I'm actually experiencing it as the famous expression, the Shechina is in Galus. Or Rabshirim ben Yechai says at the end of Masech Megillah, that wherever the Jews went, the Shechina went with them. It's with them. So therefore I'm davening for the Shechina, for the Shechina that's there. And to, the, the, the Shechina is in, in, in that distress. That's number one. Number two, even Hashem, so to speak, in His pure, unadulterated, infinite essence, He may not love because He needs, but He needs because He loves. In other words, if God's essence chooses to be connected to something, that becomes a need not because I need, because I'm imperfect and I'm missing and I need your company, but because of my choice 
I need you because I love you. It's not I love you because I need you. I need you because I love you. And if that's the case, the need is actually deeper. Because if I love somebody because I need them, so then the love is as deep as the need. And if the need ends, the love might end. But if I need somebody because I love them, and that love comes from an absolute free choice, in other words, it comes from my deepest essence, then that need becomes infinite because it's who I am. It's not because of my imperfection. It's who I am. So that's another very important point here. Next question. If God needs everything we need, wouldn't we get everything we ask for? Is not getting what you pray for a sign that you never really needed it to begin with? Thank you for such a beautiful class. Each one of these teachings can be a whole class and a meditation on its own. That's the truth. I feel a little guilty already after the first one, after the first piece that the Baal Shem Tov did about how you, how two people who want to get over fights, right? If you deal with it and not just that is an unbelievable meditation in marriage and all relationships. So yeah, you're very right. In terms of this, it's, I don't, I don't know that I have the answer to your question. Does it mean that when I'm not getting what I pray for, it's a sign that I never really needed it to begin with? That's a big statement. I don't feel that I'm, I'm in a position to be able to answer that question. I'm not in the position to be able to answer that question. I think it's a very, very personal, very deep question. What I think the Baal Shem Tov is telling here is, telling us here, part of it, that there's two ways of davening. One way is I'm davening from a detached place. It's like, I'm this Nebach case and I'm davening, please help me, this small little person who's missing everything. And the Baal Shem Tov says, no, 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 you're, <laughs> you're actually davening for God. I love it. I happen to love this teaching. In other words, I'm davening for you. <laughs> I'm really davening for you. Like only the Baal Shem Tov could say this. It's like, my need? It's actually your need. It's actually your need. If you want to take this a step deeper, it's, do we, do I really have needs? In other words, did I decide that I should be born? Did I decide to be a man or a woman? Did I decide to be Jewish or not Jewish? Did I decide who my parents are, my family, my siblings, my community? I mean, the most important things of life, I never decided. I didn't, nobody asked me if I want to be born. Nobody asked me, if I want to be a man or a woman, if I want to be Jewish, where, what, when, how, these these critical, critical questions, nobody asked me. You know, the only thing they ask me is if I want this type of tea or that type of tea, and they don't even ask me that. You know, so how, so the real question is, so, so what's this all about? This was God's need. God wanted I should be born, and I should be who I am, and I should be born where I was. He wanted you to be born. So really, really, that's what we call Shechina. When you understand this, you understand who you are. And then I could emancipate myself because really, I don't have any needs. Now, I know this is a big statement. What do you mean? I don't, of course I have needs. I want this and I want that. But really deep down, I have to reach a much deeper and more powerful state of consciousness. I have needs. I never chose anything. I didn't choose to be born. So what need do I have? Hashem chose I should be born. So this is his need. I am his need. When you tune into that space, when I'm davening, what I'm really, really davening for is, I'm reaching a place where every void that I'm feeling 
this is Hashem's real need, because my whole existence is His need. So even my child, it's not personal. There's no ego here. Get the ego out of the way. And you become much more clear about things. The moment there's ego here, I'm going to be right. I'm the mother. I'm the father. A lot of other stuff get mixed into the cholent that are unnecessary and sometimes undesirable. When it's really, really not personal, not personal in the sense that there's no vanity here, there's no arrogance here, I'm a channel. This is God's need through me. So I'm really davening for you. So there's a very powerful clarity here and a very deep empowerment. I think at least that's part of what he's saying. Very good questions here. What does it mean that when we daven, our need is a need that Hashem has? How can I understand this practically? You, you give an example. I need help in my house. I need help with chores in my house. I need help with cleaning. What does it help if Hashem has that need? Is that supposed to make us connected to Hashem more? Is this just a shift in perspective? What do I gain from this? Okay, so Hashem needs the cleaning help in my house. I'll tell you that you never ever feel like a victim who's trapped in this hole and life is just happening despite of you. You know how sometimes things get overwhelming and stressful, especially, let's say you're having guests coming and the cleaning help didn't show, whatever it is, I don't have to elaborate to all of the people who are here. We all have in life things that just don't match up perfectly. Big things, small things, very big things, insignificant things. So there's two approaches of how to look at it. And I think it changes my mood. One approach is, I'm missing this, I'm missing this, I'm missing this, I'm missing this, I'm missing, I'm missing, 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 lacking. And the Baal Shem Tov says, no, no. Don't come from that space. Come from a much, much more powerful space. You are the light of Hashem in this world. These are needs of the Shekhinah. These are divine needs. If these are divine needs, so then you're davening for them with a joy and with a sense of simcha and with a sense of fulfillment and with a sense of celebration. Not with a sense of guilt and not from a place of sadness and depression and distance, from a place of closeness. And you also realize how important these things are, not just to you, they're important to Hashem. If this is my real need, then it's God's real need. So when I pray for them, it's coming from a place of closeness and from a place of intimacy. And it allows me to see myself as that channel of Hashem in this world. So we're working together. So what happens then to a person is that their paradigm is elevated. The vantage point through which they see everything and in which they pray for everything is much more elevated. It's also much more exciting. It's filled with much more vigor and much more stamina and much more joy. And then Hashem will fulfill my prayers the way he sees it right to fulfill my prayers. 
right? But what I'm really davening here is, Hashem, this, this is, this is you. Okay, now you want another mission? You responded to my prayers this way, you want a different mission? Okay, it's going to be a different mission. I'm not stuck in any particular place. I am a fluid channel. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. There's a, there's a flexibility that I have. I'm not stuck in a particular place and I'm looking up to heaven. I'm like, heaven, save me from this mess. No. Save yourself. <laughs> save yourself from this mess. Okay? I'm here. I'm a, ch- now this is, this is not arrogant. This is very humbling, by the way. This is not arrogant. This is not like, I'm God. I'm not God. I'm a channel. I'm a servant. Don't see this as arrogant stuff. This is not arrogant. This is actually a lot of bittle. <laughs> Nothing belongs to me. I don't own my house. I don't own my kids. I don't own my husband. I don't own my mother-in-law. I don't own my Shabbos. I don't own my guests. I don't own my community. I don't even own my bank account. I don't even own my, I wanted to say my shekel, but I shouldn't get involved in that. I don't own. I don't own. I am your channel. This is what your channel needs now in the house, right? We have chores. We got to do the laundry. This house is a mess. There's guests coming. Shabbos is coming. I am yours. I am yours. So the Baal Shem Tov says, focus on that. Focus on the void, on the need of the Shechina. And then it's really not personal. Now, sometimes it may work out. It may work out in different ways. Sometimes God has a different answer. He says, I have something much better for you. Okay, I'm ready. If there's a different need, fine. We take our egos out of the picture. We take our despondency out of the picture. We take out of our sadness out of the picture. We take our hopelessness out of the picture. We take it away. We take it out. We become channels of infinity. It takes a lot of humility. It sounds grand, but it really takes the bittle of alignment, but that ultimate alignment is what gives a person all his or her power, because enoid muvadai. So the premise of your prayer is that you're one with Hashem. Yes, that's of course the premise. That's the Baal Shem Tev's premise, always. You're one with Hashem, always. That in fact you are Hashem in this world. You are a manifestation, a, fl- a flow, a, a, a fragment of God, a ray of infinity. And therefore the Baal says, from your voids, those are the, the, in my mind, those are the most powerful words. From your own void, you can know what's the void of the Shechina. From my void, I could know what's the void of the Shechina. You know what? Try this. Try davening like this. You'll understand what the Basham Tov is saying, I'm telling you. My speeches won't do the trick. I'm a nice guy, but my speeches will not do the trick. Daven like this, and you'll see the difference. That's what I think. <laughs> okay, next question. A lot of very good questions. Thank you. Very intelligent questions. Insightful, perceptive. The last story is very, very beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Question. If if one is feeling fear, and you're telling me that this is really a message from God, what is he telling me? How does the fear disappear? He's telling me maybe a lot of things, but one thing he's telling me is, 
that if I could work on my Yiras Hashem, on my awe of God, I don't have to be afraid of all these other things. He's trying to direct me towards real awe of God. The reason I'm afraid of people or I'm afraid of social opinions or I'm busy with social conformity or I'm overwhelmed by my self-consciousness and fear of this one and that one is because I'm getting caught up in the facade and not getting to the source. Now, sometimes I may have a lot of trauma. I may need help. It's not, don't turn this into guilt. This is not about guilt. Sometimes I may not be able to do this myself. I may need a lot of help from somebody who can help me with this. So this is not about you're guilty. It's about tuning in to a deeper message that all this fear that I'm experiencing and all this addiction and all this stress and anxiety and crushes and love and and codependency and all that, it's not what it looks like. It's actually a divine messenger who's dressing up in very tangible physical clothes. I could relate to it, but my real job is go deeper. Go much deeper, and you'll see that there is a genuine longing and opportunity here for a much more wholesome experience. This is a very deep teaching. This is These are not simple teachings of the Baal Shem Tev. I'm just saying, this is not like... Uh, you know, a good, nice vart, uh, you know, it's not. These are very profound existential teachings that deal with very deep levels of self-awareness and of honesty. Just realize, every teaching here, you're dealing here with inf- infinite wisdom. It's, it's the Baal Shem Tov's teachings are channels of the divine infinite wisdom of Torah. It's, it's the Meisimer Kava. Are you telling me that when I'm sick, God is sick? Are you telling me that when I'm poor and I need money in my bank, God needs the money in the bank? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you, yeah. Again, it it needs explanation. It needs qualification. I know our whole life we hear God doesn't need anything. God is not sick. God doesn't need money. He creates the money. I understand. We know that God is not sick and he doesn't need money. But the idea that we're explaining here is two things. Number one, that the Shekhinah, is manifested in every single person's life. In Tanya it says that if our eyes were microscopic, we would not see physical reality. We would see divine energy. So every physical reality is a manifestation of divine energy. And this is the secret behind quantum mechanics, just for the record. And number two, on a deeper level, even God's essence, he chooses a relationship. And that choice is free, which means it's essential, which means it's not forced, which means it's innate, which means it's absolute, which means it's infinite, which means that the need is infinite. Because if I need you because I chose you, then that need is very, very powerful because we are forever connected. It's not like I chose you because I'm in a bad mood. You see, that's what people don't understand. They say, God doesn't need me. He needs me more than anybody else. Because when I sometimes need somebody, it's because I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm in a bad mood, I'm codependent, I'm experiencing something. But when God chooses, it's free. It's unlimited. It's uninhibited. In other words, it's coming from the essence. 
So then it's infinite. So the need is much more powerful. It's, it's, it's more, it's more, it's more of a love than a need. I hope I'm making myself at least a little clear. I need a home. For me, that's a physical need. Are you telling, are you telling me that God needs that? That's a void in the Shechina? <laughs> First of all, I was teaching, quoting the Baal Shem Tov. I see this is a recurring question. Yes. If I need a home, I need a place to live in, or I'm living in a tiny home, and I need more space. The Baal Shem Tov said it's not because you're a narcissistic, selfish uh, person who is spoiled and bratty. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You don't have to go there. There's actually something much deeper than that. God wants a bigger space in this world because your home is God's home. Yeah. You want a bigger home? You know why? Because Shechina wants a bigger home for you. You know why the Shechina wants a bigger home for you? Because in your in your bedrooms and in your kitchen and your dining room, the divine presence is going to shine through your love, through your relationships, through your connection, through your good deeds, through your hospitality through all the goodness that's going to live in your home. So yes, it's a divine need. Because if you have a bigger home, there's a bigger dira betachtainim in this world. If you see yourself as detached, and as physical and coarse and grub and brute, you're right. But the Baal Shem Tev didn't see you like that. The Baal Shem Tev saw you as a channel for divine infinity. So when I want a larger home, Hashem wants a larger home. You know why? Because in that larger home, there's going to be more, a greater manifestation of holiness in this world through that larger home. So that's a divine need. That's a need of the Shekhinah. And when you could focus on that, the Baal Shem Tev said, automatically, the flow is much less obstructed. You tune into the source. If you tune into the source, the tefillah could come and be implemented with, with more smoothness, with more easiness. But don't get caught up in yourself. Don't cut off that alignment. Really be aligned. And of course, if you're really aligned, there'll be things that you'll want that daven for. Of course. But to put it differently, the narcissist can't really pray. The narcissist is trapped in a very tiny space. Real prayer, let's put it this way, real prayer is when I'm one with God and I'm praying for God. That's real prayer. There could be other forms of prayer. I could be in a very selfish, horrible, jealous, frustrated, despaired mood. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just, that could be there. And I'm davening. But it's a very, very, it's a very, very pathetic form of prayer because I'm not aligned in any way. Prayer is alignment. Prayer is opening yourself up that you're not a small, petty, horrible person. So the premise of prayer is that God is listening to me, that God is one with me, that God wants to hang out with me. <laughs> then we're going to have now a good therapy session. We're going to talk to each other. So the th- premise of prayer is alignment. And when that's the premise of davening, and that's what I'm opening up to, so the ultimate form of davening, the Baal says, is that we're so aligned that I'm actually davening for you. It's like when you're davening for your husband, you're davening for your child. You're so aligned, you're so connected. 
And then the, the flow is smooth. There's no obstructions. You spoke a lot about learning Torah and how we learn Torah. Does this also relate to women who don't have that mitzvah of learning? Well, this relates to everybody, even women and men. Women are obligated to learn all of their mitzvahs that they do. That includes all of the negative mitzvahs. It includes many of the positive mitzvahs, not all of them. It also includes the six continuous mitzvahs of Sefer HaChinuch, in terms of Sefer HaChinuch, which is belief in Hashem, which is love of Hashem, which is awe of Hashem, Hashem's oneness, all these types of things. So that's already, you're dealing with, <laughs> you're dealing with infinite, infinite, infinite aspects of Torah that relate to men and women. So, so this, this issue, I don't think there's a difference. Wow, a lot of questions here on the website. Okay, next question. Relationships are not easy. I try to learn to be a giving person, but the same thing happens again and again. It hurts so much when your friends ignore you. And if you open up to a, you open yourself up to a conversation with them, they raise eyebrows and they look at you differently. What would be a dignified way to try and work hard on your relationship without hurting yourself? The Balshamtiv teaches that I have to confront where you hurt me, where I hurt you but they're all raising eyebrows at me. Nobody wants to be real. Well, maybe you're hanging out in the wrong places. Maybe you have to hang out here much more often. Over here, everybody wants to be real. I, I hear everybody being real all the time. I mean, we can be more real, and I always should challenge myself. What's that title, Getting Real? We all have to learn to be more real and more real and more real, but there's a lot of people who want to be real, and... That's who you should be hanging out with. Uh, uh, you should come here where, where we all, there's a, a, unbelievable people here who, who are real, who are vulnerable, who express themselves. You can agree with them, you can disagree with them, but a lot of real people, number one. Number two, it's hard for me to comment about other people without knowing them. I, I, I really, I'm very careful not to judge people. So you say they raise eyebrows, you know. I don't know what's behind that communication. What are they hearing? What are they seeing? What is your relationship? If you, if these are people who are friends and you have some connection to them and you could sit down with them and you say, I want to have a heart to heart, vulnerable talk. They're all raising eyebrows. I don't know. It's very hard for me to give a comment and give a suggestion when I don't really know the other side of the story. You know what I mean? But generally speaking, when you meet people who want to grow, and you share something with them that's genuine, I find that at least in most cases, the response is reciprocal. But you know what? You don't have to be everybody's best friend. You have to appreciate that there's borders and boundaries. Not everybody will always be able to appreciate you or understand you as like other people, and that's fine. It's perfectly fine. I have another question. Do you think any of this is really practical? <laughs> Can we implement this in our lives? So I am of the conviction that all of this is very practical. In fact, I think it's from the most practical things that uh, a person could learn about the world. Because, you know, we're living in a time, let me tell you something, we're living in a time a very, very heightened awareness, a very deep awareness. We can deny it. We could make believe that we're not living in such a time. 
and go back to the way people were 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 60 years ago or 1,000 years ago, which I don't know how people were because I wasn't around and I'm still trying to figure myself out today. But the point is there is a lot of heightened awareness today. There's a lot of things coming out. There's a lot of longing. There's a lot of searching, a lot of yearning. And I think that these teachings, they just, they hit, they hit the spot. They, they cut through all the layers of, of toxicity and they, they really, they're, they're gifts. They're, I, I have no way of, of, of describing them. They are priceless gifts that God has given us through these holy souls like the Balshamtav. And, uh, I find them to be life changing. I find them to be transformative. You know, to put it in different words, if Judaism is to be successful today, it has to compete with the highest levels of psychological, spiritual, and scientific literature that is literally exploding in the world day after day, week after week. If you're, if you're following what's happening in the world of physics, what's happening in the world of quantum physics, what's happening in the world of psychology, what's happening in the world of emotional awareness, of spiritual mindful techniques and all of that, there are explosions of data and research and ideas and methodology. And if Yiddishkeit really can't um, hold up, hold its own in the presence of all this, sophisticated spiritual people will run to so many other places. When you learn the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, you learn the teachings of the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, you see that Yiddishkeit actually embodies these greatest truths in the most exceptionally profound way and applies them to real life. So it's not just theories. So that the cutting-edge literature on physics and science and spirituality and meditation and psychology are not just existing in Judaism, but actually Judaism brings them all together in the most elegant, sophisticated, and practical way giving its ultimate spiritual spin on all of it from the most profound, infinite source, which is the Ein Saif. So I find it to be extremely meaningful, extremely, especially in today's day. I totally agree with what you just said, and I feel that this is the only way that we can reach our youth today. They need to be introduced to the spiritual revolutions of Judaism. They need to understand what it means to experience God. They need to understand what it means to experience infinity. They need to appreciate how Judaism can help them deal with trauma, with every emotion, with every sensation, with every experience, that they never have to judge themselves or judge others, that they could find their infinity and find their love and oneness and work through all of their challenges and any difficulty they ever encountered, sexually, physically, emotionally, spiritually, can be addressed with the utmost dignity, with the utmost clarity, and with the utmost focus on real relationships and real connection. Well said, well said, well said. Kuf nun Kesser Shem Kuf nun I know we could sit on this piece for another hour, I know that, I know that. Says the Boshamtiv. Again, this comes from Toldus Yaakov Yosef. Shamati mi moiri pirish hashas. 
I heard from my teacher the following explanation and what the Gemara says. The Pasuk says, this is a Gemara, Chagiga Daftes, Chagiga page 9. The Pasuk says, the Pasuk says in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, Ushaftem Uriisim ben Sadik Lerosha ben Ovid Hashem Avadim. You will return and see the difference between a tzaddik, a good person, and a rasha, between somebody who serves God, somebody who doesn't serve God. So the Talmud asks in Chagiga page 9, The verse seems redundant. A tzaddik is somebody who serves God. A rasha, a rebellious person, somebody who doesn't serve God. It's the same thing. So why does he say you'll see the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha? And then he repeats himself, between somebody who serves Hashem and doesn't serve Hashem. So the Gemara answers, Ella, no. It's two separate things. Because the person who serves, the person who doesn't serve, is not a tzaddik versus a rasha. Both are tzaddikim. They're both good people. But You can't compare somebody who learns and reviews his learning a hundred times to somebody who reviews the learning 101 times. Wow. So the one who serves, the one who doesn't serve, they're both learning. It's not a tzaddik and a rasha. They're both good people. One learns and reviews it 100 times. One reviews it 101 times. V'kash asks the Baal I don't understand. V'chibish vil shechaser echad yinikra. Rasha lo That's why you should be called somebody who's not serving God. Almost like a Russia, even though we're not calling him a Russia, we're calling him Loyavade, because he learned a hundred times and out a hundred and one times. Come on. <laughs> Does this make sense? A person learns Torah. He reviews it a hundred times. He didn't review it a hundred and one times. He's not serving God. Something is, is off. Ubir al Marshal. So the Bashem have explained this with a metaphor. It says in Tehillim, so the famous chapter in Tehillim 126. We say it before benching on Shabbos and Yom Tif. You remember that that capital in Tehillim? It ends off, Those who sow with tears will harvest with joy. Which means, the person who's carrying the pouch, the bag of seeds, is walking and crying. The person who's carrying the sheaves, he's returning and dancing, celebrating, singing. Says the Basham, what does this mean? What does this mean? Why would somebody be crying when they're holding a pouch of seeds? And why when somebody is carrying sheaves, alumas, why are they dancing? What's, what's the point of the Pasuk? So the explanation is as follows. The Balsham Devi Singh is talking about two people who are planting. There's a person who plants with discernment, with, with earnestness, with seriousness, with introspection. There is a concern, there is a fear that the earth is not going to be able to take to the seed, that the earth is not fertile enough, that bacteria and germs can attack the plant, 
that weeds can grow that will destroy the plant. So the person is crying, crying in the sense that they're, they're concerned, they're, they're diligent, they're conscientious to make sure that they have to do whatever it takes in order to protect the seed. He said, This person is going to be able to carry home a plant. But somebody who just does it with callousness. They don't realize the seriousness of it. They're going to end up carrying chaffs. Stable, which means the psilus, not the, the good kernels. They're going to end up with straw. So the Baal says, you're talking about two people. It's an approach in life when you're raising children, when you're working on something. Not that you're crying in the sense that you're, you're, you're anxious and stressed, but you realize the seriousness of it. You don't just, you're not callous, you're not insensitive, you're not detached. You understand the consequences of planting a seed, whether it's a physical seed or a spiritual seed. And therefore, there's a bechi, there's, 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 there's a seriousness there. This person, the Baal Shem Tov says, he's going to be noisei meshech hazara. He's going to come back with a lot of zeri. He's going to come back with a lot of healthy seeds, kernels, plants. The other person, he's just a happy-go-lucky noisei alumais. He's going to end up with alumais. Alumais represents sheaves that is just straw and stable. You can't, you can't do anything with it. It's two different, they're two different approaches. Says the Baal Shem Tev, If somebody's foundation of Torah and serving God has within it an inner sense of arrogance, then, even though it seems like he's serving God, but ultimately there's something substantial missing here. It's like the person who's carrying home the alumais, the empty sheaves that don't have any seeds in them. What's missing in his Yiddishkeit is echot, oneness, pirush, sheyichavin lishmoyiz borich soid echot hamiti. What's missing is the focus on the secret of the ultimate oneness. And thus, ubazer. Because he's missing the echad, he's called not serving. The hundred times and hundred and one times, he says it's not about quantity. Somebody learns a hundred times. Somebody learns a hundred times. But there's an echad. There's a sense of oneness. They're connected to the oneness of Hashem. I could go through all the rituals. I do the mitzvahs. I'm serving God. But somehow I'm not aligned with the echad. The echad means realizing that I am essentially a manifestation of God in this world. That enoid movade, that everything is Hashem's oneness. When a person allows Yiddishkeit to just become an exercise in doing things, but I don't allow my consciousness to be elevated, to become part of Echa, to see the organic oneness of the world, to see the organic oneness of humanity, of civilization, to see the organic oneness of the Jewish people. 
to see the organic oneness in myself. I'm learning a hundred times. I know all the material, but I'm missing the echad. The kirvas alakim, the realization that everything is connected and everybody is connected to the divine. The ability to be able to see in every person the divine. To see in every creature the divine. To see in every aspect of the world the echad. To see the Torah as a manifestation of echad. So yeah, I do everything. But instead of it making me a refined person, I actually become a more arrogant person. I feel holier than thou and I feel superior to other people and I'm suffering from hubris and, and self-inflation and, and I have this self-consciousness. I'm not part of Echad. The Torah is not allowing me to melt away in the ecstasy of oneness. The Baal says you're doing everything right but you're missing the core. This is called Loyavada. Next piece. Kuf Ayin Dalad. 174. Kester Shemtev Kuf Ayindalat. Bigamara. This comes from a sefer called Likutim Yakarim Yoisher Divrei Emes. Bigamara. The Gemara speaks about a fascinating story. Hillel Hazakin, Sukkah Chavchasukkah 28. Hillel Hazakin had 80 students. The oldest was Yonison Benuziel. The youngest was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Gemara says, he knew the whole Torah. He knew Tanakh, and he knew Mishnah, and he understood the Halachas. He knew the language of animals. He knew the language of birds. He knew the language of trees. And it says, He didn't abandon the great things, those are small things. Asks the Gemara, what are the great things, what are the small things? So the Gemara says, Dover Gadol, the great things is Maisim Merkava. It's the work of the divine chariot. The famous vision of Yecheskel Anavi of Ezekiel, the Haftar of Shvuas, where he sees the inner divine workings of creation. It's known as Merkava, the secrets of Torah, the great Kabbalistic secrets, the mystical secrets of the divine chariot. That's the big, great things. And what's the small things? All the discussions in Torah of Abaya and Rava who were the two greatest, some of the, one of the, two of the greatest of the Talmudic sages whose teachings and debates and disputes and conversations and explanations fill all the pages of the Talmud. The Kasha asks the Boshemtiv, Chas v'sholem she'ikru la'aviyaz da'abaya v'rava davar katin k'za'ikitur ha'seinu anemra b'sinai. How can the Gemara call all the conversations of Abaya and Rava a small thing? It's like it's insignificant. When that is the primary Torah that was given to us at Sinai, what have Jews been learning for thousands of years? It's called Havayiz Dabaya Virava. The Gemara here, like nonchalantly says, Dover Gadol, the great thing is Maisimarkava. The workings of the divine chariot, understanding the various worlds and the various levels of angels and souls and divine energies and characteristics and the chariot and the throne on the chariot and the person sitting on the throne. The whole Kabbalistic system of the spiritual science of the cosmos and the higher worlds and the higher universes. That's Dover Godl. Dover Katun, what's a small thing? The conversations of Abaya and Rabbah that fill and make up the main body of Halacha. And the background of halach, that's called a dover cotton, small thing. Asks the Bashant of how can the Gemara say that? This is the meaning of it. The meaning is, 
Be'emes, hein teira haniglis, hein anistaris, hakol sug echad. The truth is that the two aspects of teira are really all one. There's what's called teira haniglis and hanistar. Teira haniglis is a teira that's revealed. What does it mean it's revealed? It's very concrete, it's tangible. It's about law, the reasons for the law, the debates about the law, the background behind each law. That's basically what we call the body of halacha. Mishnayis, the Gemara which explains the Mishnayis, and all of the commentaries on the Gemara which explain the Gemara, which is basically delving into the intricacies and the depth behind every single law articulated in Chumash and Mishnayis and Gemara, and then the subsequent commentaries on the commentaries and the way it's codified in actual law, whether in Rith, or Rosh, Rambam, Tur, Shulchan Aruch, the subsequent Paiskim afterwards. This is called Teres Hanigla, which means the tangible, concrete aspect of Yiddishkeit. Do this, don't do this. Whether it's civil law, monetary issues, marriage issues, <coughs> issues of tefillin or tzitzis or sukkah or Shabbos or Erevin or agriculture or purity and impurity or sacrifices or civil damages. Whatever the topic is, Nigla is the Torah that can be tangibly identified and articulated. Nister is basically the hidden aspect of Torah. What does it mean hidden? It's the divine energy inside of Torah. It's touching the spirituality, the metaphysics. So the Rambam says, the Baal Shem Tov says, Hakol Sugechel, it's really one Torah. Ki akol hoi kavana sa'adam. The focus, the question is where you are. What you're seeing, what your perception is, what your, where your mindset is. Im If a person's entire relationship to Torah is only one where they only recognize the tangible, concrete, technical aspect of Torah, divorcing it from its infinite underlying reality, then the person is not really grasping the true depth of Torah. Shalav Neman, on this person it says, His kindness is It's an expression in Yeshaya, chapter 40. It's like the grass, the grass of the field that withers fast. But if a person learns, and what he's craving is dveikus, oneness with Hashem, that's what he's looking for. To become a chariot, a merkava, a chariot for Hashem, a vessel for Hashem. And the only path to that being a channel is through Torah and mitzvahs. That's the path. Hashem is expressed in Torah and in mitzvahs. Then whatever he's learning, the nigla of Torah, the nistud of Torah, he or she becomes a channel. This is what they meant. The small thing is the conversations of Abayi and Rav. It's what they meant like this. If a person is only learning to sharpen their mind, or because of the intellectual pleasure they have, or because of their own needs, 
I want to become a gadol. I want to become great. I want to be successful. I enjoy it. I love it. It's awesome. It's good intellectual sharpening of the brain. Hudover cotton. This is small. Peter Shaivad Hashem Yisbarach Hudover cotton. He's serving God in such a uh, primitive way. And it's extremely insignificant relative to the true richness in Torah. Because essentially one person loves mathematics and the other person found the thrill he can get from mathematics or get from another wisdom, he gets it through Torah. But if somebody develops and cultivates the yearning, I want to become a channel for infinity through Torah, Hudavar Gadol. Now you tuned in to the true greatness of Torah. The greatness of Torah is when you see Abaya and Rava as part of the Merkava. That through the learning you're to become a channel. So when it says Rabbi Yechonim and Zakai did not let go of the great things and the small things. The great things is what? Maisimer cover the divine chariot. The small things is what the conversations and learning of Abaya has the Balshemtiv. That's small things. That's the whole basis of Torah. He says, no. It's all about the person's perspective. Havi is Dabayavirava, you could see it only as arguments and debates and intellectual gymnastics and great ideas and fantastic intellectual insights, which is learning. And if you're enjoying it, great. <laughs> Better than doing other things, no question. Extols very much a person who just enjoys and loves the learning of Torah just for the enjoyment of it. But the Balshemtiv says if you understand the essence of Torah, the essence of Torah is a relationship. The essence of Torah is that it's divine infinity. It's Maisim Recovered. It allows you to be a channel for Hashem. Every piece of Torah, whatever you're learning, anything Abayah and Rebbe discuss, if you understand what it really is saying is it allows you to become a channel for Ein Sof, to become a Merkava. So I could look at it and only see the katnus of it, only see the smallness of it, the insignificant, the part that relative to its greatness becomes insignificant, or I could see the godless of it. The Dover cotton is just stripping Abaya Virava from the true infinite depth that it has. The Dover Gadol is the Maisimer Kava. Why is this called cotton? And the Balshemtov says it's Kai and it's, it's like insignificant. <laughs> just an example would be, let's say you're giving an, you're given an opportunity to meet in your mind the greatest person who ever lived. The greatest person. And you give it an opportunity to spend a few hours with them. One, one-on-one, private audience, you could share whatever you would like, you could listen, you can ask, you could sit at the feet of this giant and absorb the ultimate wisdom, right? And you come into the room, <laughs> you come into the room, and there's a schmogus board, and there's nice spear ribs, and there's some good sushi, and there's some good drinks. So what do you do? You spend the time eating those foods and drinking those drinks. Now, those drinks are good. The food is delicious, no question. (laughs) No question. But you substituted the opportunity that is a life, that's a gift of a lifetime. You substituted it for something so much smaller. Not that the food is not good. The food is delicious. And the wine is delicious. And you'll come and say, well, that was a good meal. But you had the opportunity to touch something that is absolutely unique. It's historic. And that's just a metaphor that's incomplete because we're talking here about the person 
who's mortal and finite, versus food. What the Malshemtiv is saying is every piece of Torah has infinite depth in it. It has the divine infinity flowing through it. And it allows you to become a channel for that infinity. Maisim recover. That's Torah. But I can substitute it and just strip the most external layer, which is also part of it. It's also part of it. But it's all really one. It's all one Torah. Even the external part is essentially a channel for this infinite wisdom that shines through even the very tangible, concrete aspect of the learning. But here the question is where the person is. If I'm in a place of smallness, Dover cotton, all I see is two great sages debating, and there's a lot of intellectual brilliance here that I may understand, part of it I may not understand, some of it I understand. So some people may have an agenda of just becoming arrogant. I want to win the arguments in my school. Another person may have the agenda, I want to become a great, famous scholar, that everybody should be able to look at me and say, wow, he knows his stuff. Another person actually likes sharpening their mind, likes sharpening his mind. It's very good to sharpen your mind, teaches you how to think. Another person enjoys intellect. They enjoy brilliant stuff. They enjoy the intellect. They get a taste for it, as they would with any other wisdom. Says the Baal whatever level these people are, and it's many different levels, it's all ultimately touching only the katnos of Torah. It's the katnos. It's the smallness of it. And relative to its true greatness, it's insignificant. In other words, he captured every aspect. He understood Maisa Merkava, and he understood even Haviyas Dabayavirava, the way they could be divorced from Maisa Merkava. Wishing everybody a wonderful, wonderful day, a beautiful, beautiful Shavuos, Kabbalah Satayra to all of you, as they say, receive the Torah with joy and genuineness, and may all of us allow ourselves and our loved ones to open ourselves up to the ultimate truth and ultimate depth and love that exists in Torah, that exists in mitzvahs, that exists in Yiddishkeit, that exists in ourselves and that exists in our fellow man and in our fellow woman. May God protect all of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land and the whole world all good people in the world. And may we experience the ultimate moment of oneness, the Geula Shleima speedily, Thank you very much for joining us. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.